Hi, this is Andy, and thank you for joining me for the Next Stage Radicals podcast, where each month I'm joined by a Next Stage Radical, someone who is hands-on in the work of discovering new and better ways of working, challenging the conventions of Management 1.0 in order to move the world of work to the next stage. In each episode, I invite my guests to share their warts and all stories about what works and what doesn't, and what it's taking for them to make work work better. Hello, this is Anna, and thank you for joining me for this episode of the Next Stage Radicals podcast, the first of 2021. I'm a member of the Next Stage Radicals community, and like others in the network, I'm passionate about discovering new and better ways of working, challenging the conventions of Management 1.0 in order to move the world of work to the next stage. I work as an organisational design lead in a local authority in London. So I'm hosting the podcast this time so that Andy, the usual compare, can be put in the hot seat to talk about a particular topic of importance to him. So bit of an experiment, let's see how it goes. Um, as many of you know, Andy is the founder of Next Stage Radicals and a founding partner at Easier Inc. Hello, Andy. How are you doing? Hi, Anna. I'm great. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I'm sure it'll be fun. It does feel somewhat strange to welcome you to your own podcast. How are you feeling about having someone else at the steering wheel? I'm feeling great about it. I'm delighted that someone else is taking the steering wheel. Uh, I'm I'm moderately nervous about being in the hot seat, but you know I've done it to enough people now that I feel like I should take my own medicine. You know, exactly. Yes, it's your your turn to be grilled. Um, although don't don't think of it like a grilling. <laughs> you know, we'll just have a chat. Um, so let's get started. So I'm aware through recent conversations that you've been getting increasingly uncomfortable about something in particular. What is that thing? Yeah, so I'm probably 20-ish years into a career of uh, looking at what essentially is system change, helping people with system change. And I think my discomfort is that the dominant conversation, as I hear it and experience it, I think isn't conjuring with what we need to conjure with. It's talking in terms of uh, optimization and efficiency and, and sort of technical or socio-technical stuff. Uh, and I think actually fundamentally there is a point being missed, which is that when we talk about system change, we're, we're really asking an ethical question, not a socio-technical question. So to, to sort of paint a little bit of color into that, I think, um, you know, I've, I've done lots of research and, and practical sort of stuff around system change. And, you know, we can get really clever around uh, things like, you know, we can't uh, use rational approaches where we try and convince people to change and because they just polarize and we can't use coercive approaches because they uh, create resistance. And, you know, we can go through many, many loops of this stuff. Um, I think they're sort of window dressing to something much, much deeper, which is that if we think about it, um, work ultimately asks us what role are we prepared to play in the life of others? And that applies whether we're someone at the sharp end of service, providing a service to customers or citizens or whatever, 
It applies if we're um, in teams working with colleagues. It applies if we're a manager or you know someone who's perhaps got a formal leadership role. And I think every time we're in any of those roles, we have to start with the question, what is a legitimate role for me to play in the life of someone else? Um, and the reason that it's been troubling me is not just that that's something that I feel isn't often asked or isn't asked as clearly as I would like. It's that actually I think many of the things that we do because we treat it as a socio-technical question lead us actually to things that when we look through the ethical lens are, are quite unsound. Um, so maybe to start with a provocation for listeners, um, I really do hold the question um, that I know you asked recently in, uh, in a blog that I really loved, which is that if we were to forward wind 25, 50, 100 years into the future and look back now, if we were living in the world in which system change had happened in a way that we were all delighted with, would we see a world of bosses and subordinates as something that's ethically sound or not? And, and my hunch is the more we examine that, the more we would come to the conclusion that actually no, bosses and subordinates is just not an okay relationship. Um, certainly we may need uh, people playing a role of coordination, that, that's cool. Um, and certainly we may be prepared to sacrifice certain liberties on an understanding that this is about, you know, being mutual and, uh, you know, so it's not like a world of relentless selfishness. But I think that's massively different from a world of bosses and subordinates. So, so one way to characterize it is if we looked back from the future and said that the way we meet our coordination needs of today is through the domination of people. Is that something that we're comfortable with? And I don't think it is something we can be comfortable with. It's certainly something I'm not comfortable with. And, and maybe just to um, give you a chance to inquire further, uh, I'll finish on this, which is I think, <laughs> I think my discomfort sits on both sides of the relationship, both on the, um, the side of someone who is, if you like, in the role of dominating. I don't think they want to be there very often at least. I think most people in that role don't want to be there and do all that they can to try and not behave in a way that is dominating. Yeah. But we're in a paradigm in which I think the underlying logic of it is still dominate and comply. Yes. And, and on the other side of the relationship in the compliance role, uh, I really, I think that doesn't speak to anybody's soul, but also I think it creates all sorts of um, moral hazard really um, where compliance is very often unthinking compliance or not sufficiently thinking compliance and I think that leads us into really you know dangerous practices that um, none of us would feel proud of when we examine and I've got a few stories I can tell you about things yeah. like that you know. Absolutely yeah well, well it'd be good to get into those in a moment Andy but just to reflect on what you've just said in in your first um your first section really that yeah it's it's worth worth us remembering that you know domination in organizations as a paradigm has only been with us for about 100 years hasn't it actually you know the idea of separating the thinking people from the doing people 
um, and some people are there to do as they're told and some aren't. So actually, you know, it's perfectly feasible that in a few decades time, give or take, th these kind of approaches actually might be regarded as too, you know, too, too old fashioned and, and we, we might find a way of actually rehumanizing work. Well, um, absolutely. Um, yeah. I but, mean, I, I think I, I've got a sense that sometimes in these conversations, what can be perceived, and I, I understand why it would be perceived this way, is that there's a sort of um, naivety or there, there's a sense that, uh, you know, oh, but we've had hierarchy throughout all of human history or whatever. And, and in a sense, I'm not, I'm not really... Um, that interested in the anthropological sort of origins of hierarchy and all the rest of it the way i see it is that it's yeah. a bit simpler than that that what we've got is an understandable um human benefit that arises from coordination i'm all for coordination i'm all for we can do things at a scale that is larger than any individual can achieve on their own or any tiny social group might be able to achieve on their own um, so i don't really think it's about hierarchy versus not hierarchy mm. i think it's about how we meet the coordination need the opportunity of coordination in a way that is more uh humane that allows us all to turn up kind of whole and and just exactly yeah. the way you said be both thinkers and doers um because I, again yeah. exactly as you said the the modern management paradigm that that separates thinkers from doers hasn't been with us for all that long um, and I, and actually, I think not to put all of the ills on the sort of twentieth century management paradigm. I think there was domination before that. Maybe not the separation of thinking and doing. Mm, I think there was domination yeah. in you know uh, feudal systems and things. But I think we're at a unique moment in history yeah. that can escape that and can move beyond the kind of scarcity mindset that drives it and think about actually, you know what we we can. Be better than this uh, in yeah. a way that that takes us to um, a, a new stage of human organizing that I think really could be um, you know massively beneficial to organizations to humanity and to the environment that we're in actually because I think when yeah. we start to be more abundance focused uh, we also start to behave in ways that are more sustainable. Yes thanks Andy and so I'm sure that many people listening will like totally um, you know, agree that that would be a great direction of travel. Um, but I guess that the specific angle that I know we want to explore further in this discussion is, is this, this sense of outrage, really, that you've been kind of feeling um, mm. about this and whether, whether that's a, a particularly helpful lens through which to try and progress some of this stuff. So with that in mind, um, it'd be great to hear a bit more about your own thinking journey, your thinking and feeling journey to get mm. to this point, really. What, what is it that's really led you to touch on this topic? Yeah. So I'm holding the question, which is, what's the role of moral outrage in system change? That's, that's sort of what anchors this. And I am holding it as a question because I, I sort of get nervous around um, both the word moral and outrage in the, the phrase mm. moral outrage. So I'm not a believer in um, painting people into boxes of good and evil and right and wrong and that sort of thing. 
think that can be more morally hazardous than um, you know just thinking in terms of what's kind or humane to do. Um, and in terms of outrage, again, you know, I'm not um, I'm not in a rush to create a bloody revolution sort of thing. Um, <laughs> however, why have I landed on the phrase moral outrage? Well, it's that um, all the stuff that we tend to do in the name of system change in the world around, you know, the evidence base and reasoned arguments and all of these things, I think they lack sufficient um, force, if you like, to disrupt the status quo. In a, in a sense, the status mm. quo has such momentum and kind of therefore energy behind it that I think it we does. need something that is an equal and opposite force. And I think the only way we activate that equal and opposite force is by connecting to something deep inside us all as individuals that is about what do we find unacceptable about the status quo? Not, not just something that we could change or that might be nice if we changed, something we feel we must change, a, a standard we feel we cannot keep walking by and accepting. So that takes me to moral outrage, which is, I, I think, you know, when I, when I think of some of the stories that I've come across that have made me feel system change is necessary. I think when I allow myself to move beyond the kind of rational, um, facilitative, uh, you know, consultant that I have to be and I engage with it as a human, um, I just want to say it's just not acceptable. It's just, you know, something has gone fundamentally wrong. Um, Can you so, give us an example? I was going to say, let, let me share a story because I think it anchors it. So there are a couple. Um, the one that I think feels initially most sort of provoking of moral outrage is one that I came across in palliative care. And it was very briefly, it's the story of an elderly lady who everybody knew was right at the end of her life as in a matter of minutes and hours, not days and weeks and months before she was going to die. And she was blue lighted from her home where she'd wanted to die into a hospice. And we could query that, but actually the real sort of sense of outrage came once she was in the hospice, which is she was received by, you know, professional staff who uh, are vocational, um, but who on receiving this lady into their care, noticed she had some ulcerated wounds on her legs, pressure sores. Their policy was that we have to photograph these. And as the took down her stockings to photograph them. They noticed that those sores carried on up her leg, under her skirt, etc. Long story short, they found themselves stripping her naked, hoisting her in order to take photographs of the pressure sores in order to comply with the policy. And I know these people, so I know these are good people. This is not outrage at them, but I don't think there's any version of reality that I want to exist in, in which um, someone is stripped naked by people they've never met before, having their bottom photographed as they die. And the, so for me, the outrage isn't at the individuals, and maybe we need to sort of circle back around to why I say that in a second, but it's at the circumstances yeah. that we could have created that would make vocational individuals that are genuinely professional, who, as I say, I know and are 
people that but for that story I would say I would want caring for me and my mum and you know all the rest of it um, but we've put people like that in a situation where somehow it becomes acceptable for them or normal for them to do those things yeah. um, so that brings me back to where we started which is there's got to be something about um, the role we play in our lives at work and outside of work that is an ethical question that has to I think locate a profound sense of responsibility with us as individuals um, and therefore that really throws up this challenge to a lot of the stuff that we do or that the literature talks about in terms of system change because of course none of us controls the system the system's yeah. far bigger than any one of us we know that behavior is massively conditioned by you know in inverted commas the system mm. um so our environment shapes our behavior but therein is the catch-22 which is that if we don't change our own individual orientation to our responsibility and the principles that govern our own action we cannot help but create systems that produce stories like the one I've just described. Um, mm. And so I think there's this sort of currently, I think, vicious cycle, but that could be turned into a virtuous cycle between, uh, if you like, individual agency and the system that that creates. And, yeah. and I think the way in has to be through, if you like, an inside out transformation of the self um, so to cut a long story short, I guess what I'm really interested in exploring is that question of what's the role of moral outrage and system change? You know, what should my role as a consultant be to help people to connect to their sense of what's unacceptable and use that as the thing that activates their agency? And if that's what my role as a consultant should be, um, mm. or indeed the role of many people interested in system change, then how do we do that in a way that doesn't lead to the bloody revolution, <laughs> you know, that, that leads to constructive um, but heartfelt action that has the kind of force behind it that really can shift the status quo? Um, Gosh, you do like to ask the big questions, don't you? <laughs> um, yeah, that's um, a pr pretty powerful story and, and point, Andy. And I suppose just to really, to really try and um, reflect back the point that you've just made, if I may, um, through that brilliant example or through that awful example, I should say. Um, it, it sounds like you're suggesting that it's not about blaming the individual workers for being bad people, which is what some people looking at that example would come to the conclusion of. But equally, it's not about saying well, it's the system, not the people. So, you know, we, we, we don't want, we, we, we don't just want to accept that, well, you know, there are reasons why they have to do it that way. You know, they've got to follow the policy. I think we, we can all fall into the, the trap as people trying to bring about a system change of sometimes going, ah, oh, okay, so that's something we'll have to accept. But actually there's a, there's a third lens, I think that you're putting on this situation, which is actually, for whatever reason this is happening this is morally outrageous and you want to sort of use that jet fuel of feeling within yourself as someone who 
is trying to be a helper, a helpful consultant to, to really, um, I suppose, have, have the courage to be even bolder in, in, in suggesting or making things different in some way. Is that, is that I think that's exactly summary? right. And, and that third lens, that I, I like that as a phrase. Um, and, and I think the reason I'm saying that I'm holding this thing as a question at the minute, rather than an absolute definite kind of, here's what it is, is because that third lens is so slippery, it's elusive, it's hard to kind of hold, um, it's hard to grasp tightly for the reasons you've just described, which is that, you know, I kind of know, and I think we all know fundamentally that, that blaming the individual, um, it doesn't elicit a productive response for one. So it doesn't really change anything, but it's also not really fair. Um, and I, I, I think I'd, I'd add that it's not only not fair to the people like the nurses in my example, but it wouldn't be fair to put at the door of managers or, you know, the system stewards, if you like, you know, the, the people in hierarchical positions that maybe yeah. own the policy. It, it's not their fault either that um, policy was created for good reason, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, yeah. in a sense, I don't want to be an apologist for that, but I also don't want to point the finger and, and sort of say, look at all these terrible people. And exactly as you've described, I don't want to also kind of um, easily accept the othering of the problem where what we do is we say it's the system. And, and I think therefore dissolve our responsibility so so one of the ways this sort of manifests in my thinking at the minute is to try and draw a distinction between accountability and responsibility so mm, accountability so accountability i think again this is arguably subtle right and it depends on how we choose to define the terms as to whether this works but i think if you accept my definitions Accountability tends to, um, in most people's thinking, I think be closely associated with ideas of blame and so on. So it tends to uh, fit yeah. with the phrase holding to account and it has a sense of um, what, where accountability comes from is outside of the self. Yeah, others hold mm. to account. Absolutely. Responsibility yeah. on the other hand, I think comes from inside of the self it's you know what is my role what am I bringing what do I need to be conscious of and and holding to and how do I ensure I'm not negligent and these sorts of things so that that's from the inside out rather than outside in and I think that's significant mm. because I think the systems we tend to have today and that many of us bluntly have inherited rather than designed um Yes. but that were designed for good reasons, I think have tried to use accountability in order to leverage responsibility. Yes. In other words, it's kind of, we will hold you to account because that makes you take your responsibility seriously. But I think a more sophisticated view of human nature, I think suggests that that is a, a deeply problematic uh, action strategy, that actually what accountability really does in practice is the opposite of what it does in principle. So mm. we want it to engender responsibility. What it actually engenders is a form of irresponsibility because now what happens is 
knowing that I will be held to account for whatever you perceive to be the right thing. Uh, I now worry about how do I pass your test, not how do I do the right thing. And because the world's complex and messy and everything is highly contextual and each person that I'm responsible for caring for or providing a service to is different from the last, the likelihood yeah. is the answer I'm given from outside and held to account for through traditional systems of compliance will paint with such a broad brush that it all but guarantees that I do the wrong thing. Um, and, and then mm. makes the test of whether I've done the right thing, the wrong test. <laughs> so, so to frame that maybe slightly more simply, I think what accountability mm. does is rewards unthinking practice when the most essential component of responsibility is that we think freely for ourselves and make decisions that are our own, not made for us. So that goes back to what you said earlier about the separation of thinkers from doers. I think the mm -hmm. minute we're in that world of separating thinking from doing, we are in a world of systemic irresponsibility without realizing it. Yeah. Um, one, one thought this does trigger for me, Andy, is what if people don't want to take the responsibility and actually they're quite happy living and working in a world in which they don't have to think about things. I know I've, that's been a big learning point I've had in system change work I've supported in the past. I've sort of, in some ways I've made a bit of an assumption before that mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what people really want in the world of work is, is freedom to make their own judgment calls. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if you've got any reflections on that. I do, and they're painful, <laughs> really painful. Um, in a sense, I actually think what you've asked there is the much, much harder question than the one that we might direct people who have positions of formal authority and so on. Because actually, you know, I've rehearsed this stuff in conversation with clients and, and the like, and a great many yeah. of them. Uh, don't want to play the role of, if you like, jailkeeper, you know, that if they're a manager or they're someone with authority, they yeah. want to take a nurturing, uh, growth-focused kind of approach to work. So, they, you know, they're they up do. for this. And they have some concerns that I totally understand that are things like, well, we need to maintain the coordination benefit. How do we do that in this more nurturing, growth-led way? Yes. Their problems, I actually think, are relatively easy to solve i'm not saying they're simple right but but there's actually quite well developed theory and practice around that so the question you've asked i think is the more challenging one and at the minute i think that's one i'm still working through um so just to share some thoughts around it uh, i think the first thought i have is that the problem itself is in a sense an inherited pathological response to the domination approach that has pre-existed. Mm. So when I look at my kids um, and their pals and you know and young people in general, um, <laughs> there's an irony which is you know they're they're often described as irresponsible or whatever, but they're not irresponsible. They're relentlessly curious. The thing that we often articulate as them being irresponsible is actually them testing the world through their own lens for what's it okay to do you know mm. and what happens when I prod here and what's the feedback loop and and so on so yeah so in a sense I don't think we're built pre-domesticated 
I think we're domesticated by this sort of domination type system. Yeah. So I, I think there is an opportunity, um, which is for future generations, that rather than institutionalizing and domesticating them, we don't need to create this problem for ourselves. So if you don't mind, let me let me just pursue that line before I come back to your question again, because there's there's great theory and practice around this um, that I think is the evidence base we need to show what's possible. So um, when you look at nursery schools, and my sister's a, a nursery uh, educator now, previously a, a nursery teacher, but she now teaches nursery teachers. And she's done amazing stuff. And it's, it's not her and her own because there's stuff... Um, you know, globally around nursery education that speaks to this, but they, they talk about a move away from the sort of Skinnerist behaviorist approach to nursery education, which is about, um, you know, Pavlovian stuff of, uh, you know, if you've been naughty, according to the nursery teacher, we put you on the naughty step so that you learn yes. rules. We give you um, house points and, you know, sticker charts and things for doing the right thing. All of that is domesticating the child. And all of that, um, quite shockingly, I think, when you actually examine it, is teaching the child from very, very early on that their internal world of thoughts and feelings is faulty and not to be trusted yeah. because it's the outside world that has the answer. And so what children quickly learn if we treat them in that behaviorist way is that they are in some sense faulty or broken. And that what they need to do is start to subordinate their sense of what right is to what the world tells them is right. And now we're in unthinking practice. But but by contrast, what yeah. you see in these, you know, um, uh, from my point of view, amazing uh, nursery settings is that rather than do that, the first thing that the nursery teachers do is help children to connect to their internal world and start making sense of it and start learning how to connect the things they think and feel to the external reality that provokes them and responds to them. And so children become much more um, trusting of themselves, which means they're much more trusting of others. They're much more tuned mm. into how um, the interaction between uh, the world or the system, if you like, and the internal world, um, uh, works and so they become more and more resilient more and more adept at operating in society in ways that are mutual to the point where my sister can tell stories of nursery children at ages you know four years old and and the like who are to all intents and purposes self-managing the nursery that when they turn up they know when they're starting to be provoked and they've developed action strategies to sort of regulate themselves. And because they know that, they see when their nursery colleagues are being provoked and they know how to step them down. So simple things like, um, and see so you're getting a bit upset, shall we go get a glass of water? You know, simple stuff like that, but really wow. simple, mature action strategies in a four-year-old to the point where my sister even talks about how they'll see her come in and, um, you know, maybe be a bit stressed about something and they'll be like, oh, Mrs. Shaw, shall we take you and get a cup of coffee? I mean, oh, so, so the kids are all right. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think given the kids are all right, 
that all stand the chance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just you know, taking further the example of um, of the nursery as a um, um, as a microcosm of of wider organisations when people are adults. I suppose I wonder what sort of role the nursery teachers are playing in, in that kind of context, actually, um, and what can we learn about that in terms of how managers can helpfully support their staff Absolutely. in the workplace? I think I think that's exactly the right question from my point of view that um, I, I think, so the, the way I've come to talk about this in my work is to suggest that everybody in organizations has three roles so I talk about them as uh, leadership, fellowship, and stewardship. So leadership is um, helping people to tune into what really matters um, so that they can ensure that it's what matters here. Now, that, that as a role, I think, is not about um, dictating what really matters. It, it's, I deliberately framed it as helping people to tune into it. So it's helping people to acquire the sort of thinking skills, the um, the awareness of others, as well as the awareness of self. So what the nursery teacher was doing was developing an awareness of self in relation to the world. Um, I think that's that for me is a really key leadership role that we can all play. So how do we help each other tune into what matters by helping each other acquire thinking skills and, and you know, pay attention to um, how our environment is impacting us as individuals and all those things. The fellowship role for me is not necessarily distinct from the leadership role, but I call it out separately because I think it's really useful to remember that we're not just in technical systems or in social systems so fellowship is about remembering that part of what really matters is whatever really matters to each other so as I develop awareness of myself and my environment a key part of the environment is other thinking breathing feeling human beings so how do I start to integrate my worldview and my needs and my emotions with their worldview their needs their emotions so so that starts to take us into a world where, if you like, the, the sort of sense in which we're radically free that I think I'm trying to articulate here also means that we're radically responsible. That, you know, it's not okay to win at the expense of another. Uh, I have to find ways to integrate, you know, the needs of those around me and maybe even beyond the anthropocentric view, the, the needs of this environment, you know, our world or whatever, into my own needs. So, so fellowship is understanding and tuning into what matters to others so that my definition of what matters around here includes that. And then stewardship is the role of how do we um, play whatever role we can play in helping to shape environments that make it easier to do those things. So make it easier to tune into and, and pay attention to what matters, including what matters to each other. Um, so I think those three roles are what the nursery teachers were doing, but also what they were engendering in the nursery children. And I think that's sort of what the role of um, everybody in an organization is not just management and leadership but that that's what it is to be a good colleague 
um, pay attention to what matters, give a shit mm. about what matters to each other, make it easier to do that. Wow, yeah. I mean, that it makes a lot of sense. You know, just I'm conscious that there are likely to be people listening who I'm sure most people would think, oh, that sounds brilliant. Yeah, I'd like to do more of that. Um, but sometimes the reality of being part of an organisation can make that pretty tricky, especially if if you as a manager are being held to account by others elsewhere in, in the system. So it might be that you want to do what you can to... Um, to, to behave in this way and, and to be a leader who tunes into what matters um, and integrates what matters to others. Um, so do you have any reflections on that challenge, Andy? Yeah, and it's it's like the other one that you offered that it's it's difficult, right? It's painful. It's, you know, none of this is easy. Um, so I think where I start from is... Um, we have to be kind to ourselves and each other in trying to do this sort of work. You know, there's, there's no point um, pretending that someone is going to be able to put their, um, you know, their income security and their, you know, their family's ability to live a, a decent, you know, relatively secure life uh, on the line. Some people will be prepared to do that. Some people will be in the position where actually they're, you know, um, wealthy enough or have enough, um, uh, if you like, expert power in their system or relational power or whatever, that they can take more um, exposure than others. Um, but I think we have to, we have to give a bit of slack to each other. That said, I think that at the same time as we do that, so in a sense, at the same time as we're empathetic with each other's circumstances and so on I think we can do that and still try and be clear-headed about our responsibility and see what can we do and um, what are our opportunities to influence here and I, I think this is a delicate balance but one of the things that I've been sort of mulling over around this is that there is a, a real difficulty here which is that the minute that we behave towards what I'm, I guess, articulating as a responsibility, um, as if it is anything other than an absolute responsibility, then the minute that we do that, we de facto say it isn't a responsibility at all. We say it's optional. Yeah. So, yeah. so if we think that really, you know, the fundamental roles in our organization are these ones of leadership, fellowship, and stewardship that have articulated. And if we think that's really what we should be doing, then I think we have to start to behave towards ourselves and each other as if those are not optional, those are responsibilities. And then it just becomes a question of, okay, well, now that we've accepted that, yeah, what are we able to do within that frame of reference? And how do we support each other? And I think we will always be operating, if you like, in the... Um, <laughs> almost like the, the babushka doll, you know, that we're in a smaller system than the one, the next layer out, which is in a smaller system yeah. than the next layer out. But but that will always be true for everybody, which I think 
in a sense, takes me right back to the top and where this all started for me, which is if system changes to happen, and if that's to be a worthwhile way for anyone to lead their life, you know, attempting to achieve system change, then I think it only becomes possible when we connect to our individual responsibility, because otherwise we have a conspiracy of silence, which is essentially maintaining the status quo of no one's mm. prepared to move until someone else is prepared to move, so nothing moves. Absolutely, and, and I guess, ultimately the way that we choose to behave and interact with everything around us is the thing that is most within our gift to mm. to influence and control isn't it so in some ways I think what you're suggesting Andy is quite a liberating concept for someone trying to bring about system change I, I think I see it that way anyway yeah, yeah well I've found it liberating personally actually I mean it's it's troubling it's challenging but I found it liberating and, and, and in a couple of ways so one of them is um, I, I'm a big believer in um, uh, how behavior is reciprocal, uh, which is sort of mm. what the systems theory says as well. You know, that if, if behavior is a product of our environment, one of the most significant things we can do to shift the environment is start norming new behavior. Um, so I've found the more that I've talked about this, and the more that bluntly have allowed my emotions around it to show as well, the more people have been prepared to be vulnerable around me and yeah, the more we've been able to really properly empathize with each other and find practical ways to do things even within our constraints. So I think, I think there is a thing of being brave enough to get started that leads to reciprocity that makes it easier and easier and easier and more and more scalable. Um, I think the other side to it that I wanted to touch on as well is I'm not a brave person, right? I, I, that's not me being um, self-deprecating or anything. I, I have historically been the sort of person that has um, quite readily sought approval from others. That's, you know, that's a reality. Um, but what, has shifted it for me is two things I think it's this sense that I can't have my life be an exercise in futility so given that I've chosen a life that's about system change um, and given what I've learned you know I've got to do something um, yeah and the previous and I, approaches haven't worked got to try something different <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I'd be mad to just keep on hitting my head against the same wall right um, so so that that's one bit which is then shored up by a second bit, which is I don't see what I'm talking about as really requiring courage now. Um, so, so all this stuff around psychological safety, which I, I, you know, I've got, I've got an awful lot of sympathy with as a, a, a sort of field of study, and it links to the things I was saying about accountability and responsibility. Mm. But, but the language of it slightly troubles me. Because I think actually when, well, if I just speak for myself, when I've connected to the thing that I find deeply unacceptable in the status quo, I no longer feel like what I need is safety or courage. It's just not acceptable. <laughs> so am I going to walk by what's unacceptable to me? Well, I don't think so. And I don't think that's, that's for me, that's not a bravery thing. That just becomes a necessity thing. Um, and and maybe for listeners, you know, what I would want to say is that doesn't leave me here thinking 
you know, like I've achieved some special form of Buddha-like enlightenment. It's not that at all. I think we will all find our own things we find unacceptable. But I think what I can say is that for me, having found this specific thing unacceptable, I don't really feel any fear in just addressing it now because it's the thing that has to change. Um, and uh, and that's partly why I'm interested in this question of what's the role of moral outrage, because it's back to maybe it's shifting that paradigm from one of safety and courage to one of just absolute necessity um, that is the equal and opposing force that allows us to shift things. Because again, I, I think almost everybody, not just in my little echo chamber, but almost everybody on the planet, I think recognizes a need for system change. So, so if we can connect to that thing inside us that says this is unacceptable, we don't need to use it violently. We don't need to use it against each other. We just need to use it in fellowship, I think, and we can do something pretty cool. So there is, there is a vision and there is hope for the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a nice message for us to start 2021 with, I think, Andy. Um, thank you so much, Andy, for sharing your thoughts on that. I just, I'm conscious we've, this conversation has gone sort of left right up yeah. down all over the place and i hope it's been of interest to, to people listening but i just wanted to check andy is there any is there anything else you wanted to say on this subject before we kind of wrap it up um so th there's a million things but i think i think the core of what i'd like to get across i think i've got across so i'd maybe just re-emphasize it which is that um, I think a lot of it anchors to this idea of fellowship and, and the, the um, I think, complementary idea of responsibility or personal agency. And um, I think what I'd love to say to anyone who's listening, who is interested in this, even if they're quite sceptical, but they're interested, is I, I'd love to... Um, get feedback and to have the chance to explore it with people um, because I think there is something in this that, that I, actually I think a great many people are thinking and feeling and talking about in their own ways so again I, I don't think I'm sort of necessarily seeing anything unique here but but I'm really interested to see whether we can um, amplify the conversation around you know whether it's moral outrage or whether it's some sort of um, ethical necessity or, or whatever it is but there's something I want to tap into and explore with people on this so anyone that's interested in that uh, I think what I'd say is get in touch um, and let's explore it. Cracking thanks Andy um, so that's been really, really interesting. Just while I'm on your podcast, I'd also just like to take the opportunity to thank you for all the elbow grease you've put in to get the Next Stage Radicals community going, um, because I'm sure it hasn't been straightforward for you. But I know that I'm not alone in finding it just a brilliant community to connect with, great bunch of people and a really rare island of sanity for us a lot of the time. So thank you for that. That's really kind of you, Anna. Thank you. And yeah. uh, I think you know this, but it's um, 
Yeah, it's taken work, but to be honest, it's a privilege. Um, and a bit like everything I've been saying in this podcast, it, it's been its own source of energy. So I feel it's given me far more than I've taken from it, but I'm, I'm very grateful for the, um, for the thanks nonetheless. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections. So please tweet me at Next Radicals or get in touch at nextstageradicals.net. There you'll also find hundreds of posts and podcasts, sketch notes and stories, reports and resources, which Next Stage Radicals like you have shared as they explore what it takes to make work work better.